Greetings and welcome to the Animal Wellness Podcast, the official podcast of Animal Wellness Action. Hi, I'm your host, Joseph Grove. On this show, we talk about animals from the perspective of people who care about them and have the ability to improve their lives by influencing culture and supporting laws and regulations accordingly. To stay up to date with all of our news and information, subscribe to this podcast, receive our free newsletters and more, visit animalwellnessaction.org. Wayne Paselli and Marty Irby are with me today. Wayne is the president and founder of Animal Wellness Action. Marty is its executive director and chief lobbyist in D.C. And, and I got to tell you, you're both, it's been a while since we've been on, and you're, you're both even more handsome and, and formidable than I remember. So you're it's a, impro- improving. It's an audio things. call. It's an audio call, Joe. So I, I think that that really says a lot, right? Oh, you know what? Dag on it. I've got my Brad Pitt portraits <laughs> up on my computer again. Yeah, you're probably just the same old people. So, all right. Well, very good. But I, yeah. I thought we all three had a pretty good tan, maybe. I don't know. A pretty good, a good tan. summer. Yeah, I haven't left the office all summer. So I am looking uh, vampiric, uh, kind of like Nosferatu with a weight problem. That's kind of where, where I've been. So at, at any rate, seriously, it is good to see everyone uh, and talk to you again. Uh, we uploaded our last show in July. It seems to be the the custom unintentionally executed as it may be to take a little time off toward the end of summer. I know everyone gears up for kind of the final legislative push of the year. So, and just following you guys on social media and seeing everything come through as I do, it's unbelievable the amount of energy uh, you individually and animal wellness action as an organization are expending for the benefit of animals. So I'm just, you know, as I always am and probably say ad nauseum, uh, just super proud to be a, a, a part of a part of the team. So welcome back and it's good to see you again. Thank you. We're glad to be with you. Glad to be talking about these really important legislative and executive agency issues because Marty and I get so steeped in it, and uh, it's a real opportunity to tell our supporters and others what's going on in Washington. And I know much is happening. You guys are behind a ton of initiatives. So my first question would be, how's the new administration doing? How is President Biden doing on our, and perhaps the hopes of many animal lovers, to improve the United States for animals? Well, um, I'm sure Marty has a lot to say, but let me start off if I might, Marty, and, and just say that I'm disappointed. I'm disappointed mainly in the administration, but also to a degree with the leadership in the House and Senate on key committees in largely being indifferent to animal issues. I don't sense any hostility. Um, I don't think President Biden is hostile to animal welfare. I think that there's nobody saying in the White House animal welfare is important and we should be doing something about it. It's kind of a forgotten child in this enormous family of issues that any new administration needs to deal with. And what's happening is that key appointees, particularly at the Interior Department, which is led by Deb Holland, former House member who had a very good voting record on animal issues, uh, she's just been absent when it comes to animal issues. And uh, Marty and I and the rest of our team and lots of other Americans are deeply distressed at the massive roundups of wild horses and burros in the West. They're on track to exceed 18,000 wild horses and burros rounded up, which is the biggest number 
in U.S. history. Uh, the wolf issue has come into sharp focus because three states, Idaho, Montana, and Wisconsin, have initiated plans by largely led by Republican state lawmakers to gut wolf numbers, to, to drop wolf numbers down dramatically. And Idaho is by as much as 90%. And a number of animal welfare groups and conservation groups have sued, and we are part of this legal action as well, to restore federal protections for wolves, to protect them against these, these horrid state actions against wolves. And the administration is really picking up on the Trump administration's delisting effort and defending the Trump administration's nakedly political delisting effort that happened. It was announced just two days before the November 2020 elections with the press conference by the Interior Secretary David Bernhardt in Minnesota, which is the state with the most wolves in the lower 48 states, saying, oh, wolves have recovered. When we knew it was just um, a, a pretense for letting ranchers and hunters and trappers and hound hunters start to kill them. And Wisconsin immediately initiated a season in February during the mating season for the wolves. They killed 218 wolves in a little more than 48 hours. And now they want to kill more of them. So the administration has done nothing to protect wolves. This administration has done nothing. And then finally, in what is also terribly distressing to me, the administration is continuing with a plan by the National Park Service to open up trophy hunting of bison in Grand Canyon National Park. And it's a dozen bison, not an enormous number, but the precedent is what deeply concerns me, which is we haven't allowed sport hunting or trophy hunting in America's national parks and national monuments. This is a deviation of a hundred year policy of protecting animals in the parks for their own benefit, as well as to secure the experience of visitors who actually wanna see wildlife. When you, when you hunt wildlife, the survivors run away. And God knows the animals are smart. That's why they run away. So those are just three issues within the interior realm, Joe, that I think are deeply disappointing outcomes for us as a nation. And Biden and Holland are just not doing anything to address them in a, in a positive way. Now, one could argue that, good golly, you've got the infrastructure bill still being hammered out. They're dealing with a resurgence of coronavirus that no one at least claimed to expect. Uh, are we asking too much for an administration coming in, undoing a lot of things they perceive worthy of undoing from the Trump administration, as well as dealing with those factors? Are we asking too much? What, is this a reasonable request for them to, to have done better? Absolutely. It's reasonable. I mean, if you're the president of the United States, you have to be able to walk in true gum and you appoint people and you ask them to understand your value system as president and execute on that vision. Animal protection issues have been part of the national discourse for decades, and particularly so in the last you know, 10 or 15, 20 years. He should be telling Deb Holland and Tom Vilsack, who run the two most important agencies, Interior, which deals with the wildlife issues and our public lands, and Agriculture, which deals with so many of the farm animals and Animal Welfare Act enforcement, animal fighting, puppy mills, inspection of road, roadside zoos, circuses, others. Joe Biden doesn't need to do it. That's not his job every day. His job is to send a message, and it's about three sentences. 
make animal welfare an important priority for your agency. Don't make it the number one thing. You've got a lot of other things to do, but damn it, uh, Americans care about animals. And that memo has not been written. Those words have not been uttered. And we're seeing really bad outcomes for animals in the first nine months of this administration. Are competing interests interfering with progress or is this just institutional apathy? I do think it's um, a combination of both. I was talking with a friend who uh, formerly worked with us at, at our previous employer the other day, and they said, you know, one of the things that we needed to remember is when we were looking at all of the folks who were in the Democratic primary, we had campaign platforms we received from the majority of them on our issues. The Trump agenda had animals on the list. They were doing ads and focusing in on more companion animal-related work, but the Biden administration was just completely silent and like crickets all throughout the primary and then the full campaign uh, before he was elected. So I think our expectation might have been a little higher than what it should have been. Um, I think, you know, the wild horse issue is a very good example of just how we received nothing but dead silence. We went as far as having two rallies, one with Catherine Heigl in Utah one at the front gates of the White House itself and had tens of thousands of people contact the White House, the Interior Department, the Bureau of Land Management about the wild horses and got no response except a letter related to climate change that didn't mention the horses. Finally, when enough constituents raised cane about that letter, they did send a more broad animal letter out that just talked about animal rights. So we went a step further, had celebrities posting Jen Psaki's, the White House press secretary's email online, flooded her inbox, and we still got nowhere. So I think it's apathy uh, more so than anything. But they, they, of course, are overwhelmed, as any new administration would be. It, it's not that hard, though, to pick, even if it was just one of these animal issues and try to make it a priority and do something because there are so many voters that care about this. Further to what Wayne was talking about, Throughout the administration, we have also seen a blanket freeze implemented by the Biden CDC that uh, was announced earlier in the summer, implemented in July. Now there are canines from 113 countries around the world that cannot be imported into the U.S. because of this blanket freeze. There are military heroes who have their dogs over in other countries and they had to leave them and come home. There are military heroes who are still in other countries and won't come home because they can't bring their dog with them. We faced the same thing with diplomats. And then, of course, thousands and thousands of dogs that were scheduled to be imported to the U.S. from the dog meat trade and rescued from the dog meat trade in China. So that's just, I think, an example of a knee-jerk reaction where they should have given stakeholders the opportunity to get involved and engaged and have some say-so in that policy. As a result of that ban being implemented, we were able to pass an amendment to the appropriations package in the House of Representatives back late July, early August by a voice vote that would give the CDC $3 million to help streamline their inspection uh, import process and the documentation process they were having issues with. And now, just this past week, we had 57 bipartisan members of the House of Representatives, 35 Democrats, and 22 Republicans send a letter to the head of the CDC calling for them to lift this ban and work with stakeholders to implement new processes that would streamline 
the uh, imports and make them more efficient. So we're we're throwing everything we can at them. We're working around the clock, night and day. Wayne is, I am, Penny is, everyone that works with us is. And I think we're having to work harder than ever to, to push these things uphill. But um, we're, we're going to keep plugging away and appreciate everyone's support and all of the thousands of calls and emails they've sent in. So in the infrastructure bill that we're hearing a lot about, of course, these days, it's reaching critical mass as a, as a legislative uh, executive branch issue. Uh, is there anything in the infrastructure bill that can put a smile on our faces if it makes it through to the final legislation? Well, the infrastructure bill and the reconciliation bill are enormous packages. Their fate is uncertain as we record this, Joe, as you know. There's nothing hugely consequential for animals in these bills in in our view, in terms of an active policy goal that is being advanced. There is some language on the infrastructure bill about about roads and minimizing roadkill, a little bit of that. we did work in the House to attach an anti-horse slaughter provision to the infrastructure bill. This is the roads and transportation issues. And uh, we engineered an amendment led by Troy Carter with John Katko and Brian Fitzpatrick to forbid shipment of live horses to Canada and Mexico. Now, we stopped slaughter some years ago in the US. 2007 was the last year that we had operational slaughterhouses in the United States that were taking in horses and cutting them up and shrink wrapping the meat and sending it overseas to Japan, Italy, Belgium, France. But the horse slaughter trade did not end in North America when those U.S. plants were shuttered. I'm glad that they were shuttered. But at the same time, we need to stop the live transports to Canada and Mexico. That's what we did. The numbers are down from years ago was about 37,000 horses that were shipped to Canada and Mexico, down from more than 100,000 just a few years ago. But we passed this relatively easily in the sense that we had lots of votes in the House. We think we had lots of votes in the Senate, but the Senate negotiators who were now driving the final terms of the infrastructure bill did not address the horse slaughter issue. And this, again, is the indifference to animal issues. It's not open hostility. It's indifference that lawmakers are not making animal protection a priority. That is my biggest criticism of the lawmakers at this point. No one's saying we must address animal welfare. People are saying we must address climate change. People are saying we must address you know, child poverty. Those issues are being included in big policy packages because some lawmakers are demanding it. We're just not getting that. So on one end of Pennsylvania Avenue, the White House is not doing really a damn thing on animal welfare. And in the Congress, you know, we've got more bills and AWA has initiated a raft of new policy proposals. But, you know, we just haven't seen final action on these items. And it's because not enough lawmakers are pounding the table and demanding action. Marty, I'd like you because you typically give us a very insidery view on what goes on on the Hill. Uh, What's your take on this nonfeasance relative to animal issues? Well, I think, you know, we have fortunately been able to get six bills signed into law in the past three years from 2018 uh, through December of 2020, we got a lot done in an era where Congress was split 
and not one party controlled the White House in both chambers. Now we're in a situation where one party does control that. And I think they, uh, even though by a very narrow margin, they control it, think that perhaps it's not as important because they have that control now. But what they need to remember is uh, who helped get some of these people elected and that the voters out there, whether it be in Georgia, where they just flipped two Senate seats, or it be in Colorado, where you have some some very far right wing people that have been elected. Um, there are tons of voters all over the U.S. that really care about this issue. And I think that we are seeing more and more involvement from the Republicans, new Republican freshmen, one that I might add, Nancy Mace from South Carolina, when and I have been working with. She's already leading on two bills, the Mink bill and the checkoff legislation that we've talked about on previous episodes of the podcast. Uh, we've got some great support from Barry Moore, a new Republican from Alabama. Um, we have Diana Harshbarger, a new Republican from Tennessee. There are many, many more. Maria Salazar is terrific. Um, so we're getting the newer people on the Republican side. I feel like it's a little slower getting started with the newer people on the Democrat side, but there are, are more of them um, than there are, I think, new people on the Republican side. So um, it's an interesting dynamic. We've just got to keep plugging away with these folks. We've got to get more calls in. We've got to get more emails in. And we've got to scream louder because in this place, I think at least Wayne, I would hope, agree with me. He who is closest in proximity and speaks the loudest and gets in front of the right people is who gets things done. Well, we have a rational case to make. And as Marty said, you know, animal protection is one of the biggest causes in the U.S. There are 35,000 animal welfare groups. A few years ago, it was rated the number one cause in the United States by number of donors and number of volunteers who are doing work in this space. The, the world has shifted. I mean, animal protection has gone from a bit of a marginal issue to a mainstream issue in terms of American businesses and uh, American consciousness and philanthropic activity and activity on the ground. And it feels like this new administration just, just is not paying attention to it. I mean, if Cory Booker had been elected to the White House, you can bet that wolves would be protected. You can bet that bison would not be hunted. Um, and I, do, I think that Biden just has not made it a priority. He's done nothing personally to exhibit any hostility. And I'm sure his people in the White House would say, listen, we've got infrastructure, we've got reconciliation, we've got a COVID crisis. I agree with them. But that doesn't mean you can't tell your cabinet secretaries, make animal welfare an important issue, do some things, get some things done, get, some, get a rulemaking done on puppy mills. Uh, you know, don't let the Centers for Disease Control have a ridiculous overreaching policy on rabies prevention. A million dogs come into the United States every year, most of them because they're traveling with Americans overseas and then the Americans return with their companion animals. There have been three rabies cases in the last six years. So that's three million animals with rabies coming in to the United States out of six million. That does not warrant a policy to shut down the movement of dogs from 113 countries, a majority of countries in the world. This is adversely affecting U.S.-based charities that are doing international dog rescue and relief, as well as hurting diplomats and service members and others who have deep bonds with their animals. All that needs to happen is someone at the White House needs to put a call into Rochelle Walensky, the head of the CDC, and say, 
we don't want this overreaching policy. We care about dogs. Uh, we want to protect the American public and animals here in the U.S. from rabies. But you don't need a policy to forbid all dogs coming in. You need to set up a, a, a sensible screening process, which is what we formulated in pushing the amendment that we had bipartisan support for. But again, the CDC is just chugging along and doing its thing. They're just bureaucrats who are not listening to the American public. Right. I want to clarify the number. Um, it was three dogs out of the millions, not three million dogs with rabies. I, I'm sorry. Yes. No. Three, three dogs out of six million over six years, an estimated six million uh, have come in over six years, a million a year, and only three dogs, two of whom were from one country, Egypt. And we have great rabies prevention policies already in the United States. Most people have local requirements to vaccinate your dogs. Rabies is not a particularly communicable disease. It typically takes a bite from an animal as compared to an aerosolized circumstances we have with COVID where you know you, you cough and someone can contract the, the, the disease. Among viral diseases, should we be so worried about rabies? No, we should be worried about coronavirus. We should be worried about mink farms that are incubating the coronavirus. That is what we should be doing. The CDC, not saying a whit about 450 mink farms in the United States and Europe that have had COVID outbreaks because mink are uniquely susceptible to the coronavirus. They transmit it among mink and they spill it back to people where you have three variants that have developed on mink farms. And we have national legislation led by the chairwoman of the Appropriations Committee in the House, Rosa DeLauro, a bipartisan bill to address this. And CDC isn't saying a damn word about it, but they're worried about three dogs who had rabies that came into the United States in six years. I mean, talk about a disproportionate response. Talk about the poorest risk assessment that you could possibly do as, as a Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. You're worried about rabies when we've got 40 million cases of coronavirus and the biggest non-human animal source are mink farms that are in the homeland. I mean, it's ridiculous, Joe. You know, it it fires me up just hearing you describe it uh, like that. It's, it's frustrating and uh, disheartening at, at, a, at a core level to understand what you're saying. And I feel, I feel the frustration. And Marty, you touched on this a minute ago. It was really interesting to me that it is ironic that when we are so well situated, and when I say are, I suppose I'm going to, I don't mean politically uh, by party, but just by interest, let's say, uh, when we would seem to have the major players in the control of one party that might move forward on this, that it's ironically inuring to our detriment. Um, is there something about uh, a, a mixed allocation of party control of these various branches of government that somehow helps animals, uh, maybe because it's a wedge issue or uh, it's something that can be done when they're not focused on the things maybe that they ought to be doing. I'm not saying it very well, but I'm, I'm hoping, Marty, that notwithstanding that, you can understand what I'm asking. No, definitely, Joe. I think we've seen in the previous Congresses that have been split over the past few years where both Republicans and Democrats paid attention to animal issues because they saw it as a slice of the pie that they could bring into the fold in an election year. 
Um, that's what we saw last year. There were a lot of people helping with animal issues. We got the Horse Racing Integrity and Safety Act signed into law and done at the year end. Um, that was in a year where we had COVID. We had tons of turmoil, but we still got a bill done. And it was part of that was because I think it was an election year. Wayne has said this many more times than I have, but when Congress is divided, and when I worked in the House of Representatives, I felt like there was always more pressure to do something that was bipartisan on the issues we, my former uh, employer, Congressman Ed Whitfield, worked with now Senator Joe Manchin a lot on energy issues, and they were always trying to do something in a bipartisan manner. There are many other examples of this, and I think now where this one party is in control, they perhaps have the view that they don't need us as much. Um, I may be wrong about that. Wayne may want to elaborate, but I think that's what we're seeing. I think it's complicated. I mean, Marty, I don't disagree with you at all on that, but I think that the Democrats are so focused on a few issues that they have forgotten animal protection. Democrats are generally better than Republicans in terms of national politicians. Uh, Democrats have better records than the Republicans on the set of issues that, that we work on. And part of that is that the Republicans have some core constituencies that have some skepticism and even some hostility to animal welfare. The Farm Bureau, uh, the NRA, those are big parts of the Republican coalition. The Republicans have become a rural party to a, a considerable degree. I mean, they represent more of the rural terrain in the U.S., the Democrats represent more urban areas in the United States and they fight over the suburbs. Mainstream support for animal welfare should cross urban, suburban, and rural. Every decent person should be for stopping animal cruelty. This is a consensus position in our society, like taking care of children or you know, stopping pollution in your neighborhood or you know, having safe driving. These are just the struts of a civil society. But I think those constituency groups whisper in the ear, or sometimes scream in the ear of some of the Republican lawmakers not to get too far out on animal welfare issues. The Democrats have very little pressure telling them not to support animal welfare. It's just inattention and indifference at this point. And the key committee chairs haven't made it a priority. I mean, I know a lot of these lawmakers. I like a lot of them. Uh, Jerry Nadler from New York, who chairs the Judiciary Committee, David Scott, who chairs the Ag Committee, Frank Pallone, the Energy and Commerce Committee. I'm speaking just House committees, but I could run through the Senate committees as well. They're just not developing an aggressive agenda on animal welfare. And you did in the past have some lawmakers who did do that. I mean, I'd say Raul Grijalva, the chair of the Natural Resources Committee, has, has been a very outspoken animal advocate. And he's had some hearings on some of the animal issues, and that's great. Uh, but we need to get some issues to the floor. Um, I think he's, he's been the best one, the most active. And frankly, he's got the toughest set of Republicans to deal with. The Republicans on the Natural Resource Committee are uniformly not all that supportive of animal welfare. We have to, as Marty said, we have to start making more noise. We have to demand more of these lawmakers. They should be concerned about animal welfare. But if they don't do a damn thing and then there are no election consequences and they're just going to keep on with it, there have to be consequences. Let's pivot to some areas where we are optimistic. What are some initiatives? I'll turn it over to either one of you who wants to go uh, where we do feel confident about making progress 
in the upcoming months or the remainder of the term? Well, Joe, I'll I'll jump in and just say on the bills that have either passed one chamber or the other or have previously passed one chamber or another that really stand a good chance are, of course, the Big Cat Public Safety Act that we've talked about on numerous episodes here. Carol Baskin from Tiger King, our good friend, who heads up the Big Cat Rescue in Florida, has been working with us diligently. We just hit 218 co-sponsors this past week, so that means we have half of the House of Representatives plus one. That's the majority that we have now in support of the legislation. It passed in the previous Congress in the House of Representatives in December with more than two-thirds of the chamber voting in support of it, but we didn't have enough time to get any action in the Senate. So we're hoping we can get a House vote on that bill sometime between now and the end of the year again and then move it on through the Senate, perhaps in a larger package of bills. And then the Shark Fin Sales Elimination Act that also passed the House of Representatives in the previous Congress in the fall of 2019 has cleared the Senate in a larger package of bills that is now before the House of Representatives for consideration. They haven't taken it up yet, but if we get that through the House of Representatives, it will head on to the president's desk to be signed into law. So just on my end, those are the two I think that probably have the best shot at getting done right now. And Wayne has a raft of other legislation, I think, that also has a good chance um, that he's been pushing and and really came up with the idea of most of the other bills that are out there. So, Wayne, you want to jump in and and tackle on there? Sure. Yeah, I agree with Marty, Joe, that the Big Cat Public Safety Act, we've got a great coalition on this. And this shows the the resonance of animal protection beyond just caring for animals. When you're when you do stupid things with animals, there are downstream effects in society. Why would anyone have a tiger or a lion as a pet? Or why would they keep them in a roadside zoo and have commercial uh, interactions with the public? These are foolish activities. So we have law enforcement. We have accredited zoos. We've got conservation groups that are concerned about uh, this perception that because we have so many tigers in the U.S., that means there are lots of tigers in the wild. So we have a great coalition. All the Democrats support this bill and a growing number of Republicans support the Big Cat Public Safety Act. And as Marty said, hats off to Big Cat Rescue uh, in Tampa, Florida. The uh, leaders of of that group, you know, were poorly treated in the documentary uh, Tiger King, but they've done a great job in working with us and others and pushing this legislation forward. And then Senator Booker and Senator Capito, who's the ranking Republican on the Environment and Public Works Committee in the Senate, have been doing a great job on the shark finning bill. We got a bipartisan vote pushed by Senator Booker and Senator Schatz from Hawaii and, and Senator Capito of West Virginia to get the anti-shark fin sales bill included on a really important package that should pass the House. So I think we stand a great chance, as Marty said. The horse slaughter issue, you know, we got it passed in the House. We need to find another vehicle, perhaps, to get that done. This enjoys broad bipartisan support in both chambers of Congress. Yet this bill has been kicking around for a quarter century. We now need to shut the door on horse slaughter to Canada and Mexico. Marty also mentioned some of the new bills. I, I, I spoke passionately, I hope, because I feel so passionately about it, about these mink farms. Mink farms are simply awful living environments and dying environments for mink. The mink live just seven or so months. They're wild, solitary, territorial animals. 
who are jammed onto factory farms. They have mink group housed um, starting as little kits at the beginning of the year, and then they get slaughtered in October or November. We have raised millions of mink for the global fur trade in the United States annually. And nobody of consequence, I mean, in terms of numbers of consequence, consumes mink in the U.S. This is entirely an export-driven market. We're shipping mink pelts to China and South Korea, yet these animals exhibit incredible intraspecific aggression. So mink attack mink on these factory farms because they're territorial. They're carnivores. The footage that I have seen from Polish animal welfare groups showing what happens on these mink farms where mink literally eat other mink, some of them just give up. They're consuming them, the midsections. It's some of the most horrific footage I've ever seen. On animal welfare grounds alone, they shouldn't last one more day. But when you think about the disease transmission, they're the only non-human animal that's been proved to be a bilateral transmitter of the virus. And we have 450 farms that have been infected in three variants. What more do we need? So thank God Rosa DeLauro, who's a tremendous animal advocate from Connecticut, the chair of the Appropriations Committee, has this bill. The CDC, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and the U.S. Department of Agriculture all need to make this a priority. And if they don't, then the Congress needs to make it a priority to address this. We've got a number of other issues like horse soaring. Uh, Marty and I have been working on this for years. Marty came out of the industry, called out the terrible abuses, and has been an incredible leader on this issue. We love the PAST Act, the Prevent All Soaring Tactics Act, in terms of what it seeks to accomplish, which is an end to soaring. But it cannot pass in this Congress. It cannot. It's a 50-50 Congress, and the lawmakers, mostly Republicans from Kentucky and Tennessee, will not let it pass. And they have the power to stop it, no matter how much pounding on the table anybody does. Marty and I have talked to the industry. We have a compromise that achieves 90% of the PAST Act. I'm willing to get 90%. You can always come back another day. That's the beauty of an ongoing legislative body like the Congress. You know, we upgraded the animal fighting law five times in the 21st century. If we had said, oh, we only want absolutely every provision in the original legislation, then we wouldn't have gotten any of those done Now we have the strongest animal protection law ever in the United States, which is our animal fighting law. You know, getting 90% is an incredible advance. Yet some of our brethren and and sisters in the animal welfare community are naively uh, introducing the PAST Act and saying they oppose a compromise when they know they can't get the PAST Act done. If anybody tells me that they have studied the composition of the Congress and the legislative process and says, we can get the PAST Act done, then they are smoking something that may be legal in some states and not in others. It, it, it seems as though some, some of those groups would rather have the issue than the victory. I think, I think so. I think that, that some of the groups don't really have much of a history of getting much done on the issue. You know, we're all about strong core values on animal protection You know, I've been at this a long time. I've been a vegan for 37 years. I am deeply committed to the broad range of animal protection issues, but I've been around to know that you have to operate with an understanding of the current composition of the Congress. The Senate is the place where a lot of animal welfare bills are really threatened. 
and one lawmaker can stop progress on a bill. That's what's happened with shark finning. The only way that that has moved is because there was a very deft maneuver to have a vote in committee to attach the bill to a relevant, a relevant bill, and this one lawmaker was not able to stop it. The opposition to soaring is much bigger and broader, and it involves key leaders in the Republican Party, and they won't let the past act pass, but they will support this compromise measure, and I applaud them for being open to ending soaring. That's what we need to do is end soaring. And the name of the bill doesn't matter. What matters are the set of reforms contained within the bill. I know Marty feels strongly about this, uh, as I do. One question we always ask, and the answer seems to be the same, and I don't know if the answer is sufficient, uh, and that question is, what can people do, or, or, and the answer usually is, you know, call their legislators. Uh, do you perceive that folks are calling legislators, and in this day and age, why does that, if so, not seem to be enough? I think there may be some complacency at times. I think not enough people are calling lawmakers, not enough for writing. Marty and I hear from a lot of staff that animal issues are part of the flow of phone calls and letters. Almost all lawmakers now have a contact form on their official government websites where you can just, you know, dash a few thoughts down and send it in. It's treated like a letter. It's very easy to do it. We go, we have contact forms on our website. If you go to animalwellnessaction.org and go to contact in the about us section, we have alerts on all of these major bills. We couldn't make it easier for people to participate. But what I don't want is for people to listen to our podcast and say, okay, Wayne, Marty, and the rest of the AWA team, you know, are working on this and let's root them on. No, we need them to start firing, you know, and, 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 you know, if we're on the front lines, we need them right with us in that foxhole. And that involves communicating with lawmakers and being persistent and demanding action. That's the only way you get the attention of lawmakers. They've got a thousand issues. But if you, as Marty said early in our show, if you can turn up the volume, do it in a polite way, but, but raise your voice and demand action, that's the way that they, they begin to pay attention in a more uh, meaningful way. It is very, very important that you use those contact forms and send in an email or call that legislator. Social media is great, but social media does not always get the job done. I say this, I was a communications director on Capitol Hill for several years, and the communications people quite frequently see what's on social media, but that does not mean that it translates over to the legislative side. If you get that call in or that email in, that will translate over to the legislative people. And I think that's very important for people to remember, especially when we need to have our voice amplified. So social media is great. But from my view, what really gets things done if you're not in person is that email or that phone call. Yeah, I think we can get a lot done. We have, we have an amazing legislative agenda. We have carefully crafted mainstream bills to protect domesticated animals and wild animals. They should enjoy the support of 80 to 90% of the American public. That means 80 to 90% of the lawmakers should support it or, or 100% in, in, in many cases. Uh, but democracy and social reform is not a spectator sport. It's a participatory exercise. And the strength of movements and the energy and intensity of the movements really matter. And we've got to step it up. 
Thanks. That's a, that's a good summary final statement for us. Thank you, uh, Wayne. And thank you so much to our listeners for listening to the Animal Wellness Podcast. Be sure to visit animalwellnessaction.org for all of our news and information and to sign up for our news alerts and again to find those contact forms. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter, and we invite you to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or Spotify. I'm your host, Joseph Grove, and we'll be back soon with another episode of the Animal Wellness Podcast. Thank you.